Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Drew. How's it going? Going very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you, all of you, for tuning in and checking out this episode. Hey, uh, Aaron, you've gotten some really great questions in the last uh, few weeks, haven't you? I have, and we're going to release a Q&A uh, episode coming up next, which will feature a few different questions that we've gotten from some of our listeners. Um, thank you so much for sending those in. Uh, we've gotten some some nice feedback from people, and we'd love to hear um, your feedback as well. Uh, the best way to reach us is thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. So please, if you have an episode idea or um, some, some feedback for us or any kind of uh, ideas for topics, um, or just to let, let us know you're there, uh, just uh, feel free to send us an email. Yes, uh, we've gotten some great topics. We'll be sure to be covering them soon. And uh, we've also just received some wonderful emails from listeners saying uh, how much they've enjoyed the show. So thank you to all of you listeners. Uh, we're so glad the show's been an encouragement. And with that, we're going to get right into uh, this week's topic, which is a score study of a score of our last guest on the show, uh, which who happens to be both of our... Uh, one of our main teachers in our studies, Mr. Rich DeRosa. Yes, and um, it was so much fun catching up with Rich and hearing his backstory and where all of his uh, experience comes from, because I feel when you know that about a musician, you can start to hear that in their music. So we're excited to jump into one of our personal favorite pieces. Um, this is called Perseverance and it was recorded by the UNT One O'Clock Lab Band a few years back, um, and to me, it's just an incredibly beautiful and impressive programmatic work that has personally influenced my music quite a bit, um, and I know that uh, uh, drew for you as well. Certainly. You should all know that this piece is available for purchase on Rich's website, as well as a great recording, uh, which is available uh, from his website as well. And you can also buy the recording, I believe it's on Lab 2011, uh, by the One O'Clock Lab Band, University of North Texas. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Where do we start with this, Aaron? So so analyzing scores is a little bit tricky, but... but we find it helpful to break the analysis into some different categories. Uh, the first, the first category that we have is kind of the broad overview 
and concept behind the piece. Um, and uh, I think we, we have to start with the fact that it's a programmatic piece and the title is called Perseverance. Right. There's, there's an insistence about this piece that drives it all the way from measure one to the last measure, uh, measure 139. And so uh, I think the, the, the motif that encapsulates this perseverance, this driving, is the first thing that you hear as the listener, which is the quarter note ostinato in the piano. Yes, and it's just quarter notes, and that's it. And, it. and it never stops throughout the whole piece. And basically, it's depicting the idea of perseverance. You know, you play this this slow, um, consistent idea, and you don't stop until the very end. And it just kind of, it's a long, slow, gradual build. Uh, it's very uh, organic, the way that it develops. It's, it's very, uh, you almost don't notice sometimes how uh how much it's growing until you get to the climax and you're like whoa how do we get here it's really a very much like climbing a hill you know it, it just keeps um you just it keeps pushing forward yeah there's there's definitely a uh a, a, not a march per se but certainly that you're marching towards something um with each quarter note you take a step forward and um, the melody is is quite spacious. It's it's all it's the melody to me is if if the quarter notes represent your trudging forward uh, step by step, then the melody is the thoughts that you might be having of how much longer is this going to go? You know, how long do I have to grit it out? Um, where where does this leading? And that for me, the melody is it's not wandering per se, but it's it's. Uh, it, it's very intervallically, uh, there's a lot of wide intervals in this melody, and that makes you, it's leaping from one to the next, it's, you're not sure what's, where it's going to go, how it's going to happen, it, it's quasi-improvisatory. feels like it's uh you know your thoughts along the way and you know your mind is kind of you know when are we going to get there and another aspect of the melody there's the rhythm which it never really lands where you feel settled you know it's the first melody comes in on the um one e and uh of beat one it's like one but um and it, it never really just settles on the expected beat. It's always kind of jumping around, playing with your expectations. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing how much patience this piece has. I mean, it, it, it really does embody, I think, the concept of perseverance. Um, in, and in that way, it's kind of inspiring um, from a personal standpoint just to listen to this piece and kind of um, hear how it, uh, how it uh, mirrors that. Yes, and we should say, and we'll talk about this a lot through the episode, but there is there's such a 
cla- Western classical perspective brought on this piece. Um, it's uh, from the harmony, for, from the harmony to the harmonic rhythm, to the melody, to the actual rhythms of the piece. Um, it's it's a very much inspired by uh, Western classical music, particularly in this in the main melodic motif, a dotted eighth note to a sixteenth note. Da 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 da. It's it's it doesn't swing. <laughs> it uh, it or it has its own swing, you might say, but it, it's certainly not a an eighth note driven piece like the majority of jazz music is. So um, this is uh, we'll we'll be commenting on this, and that that actually leads us nicely to our next uh, topic, which is that uh, analyzing the form of this piece and both. Aaron and I would say that it's certainly a through-composed nature um, for the most mm-hmm. part. There's definitely a recapitulation, which we'll get to, but it is uh, through-composed uh, like many classical works are. So we we broke this form down into four very large sections, and each of those sections can be broken down into smaller chunks. But uh, the first section is the statement of the what we thought were two themes— you could, you could kind of categorize. The second section, it's kind of a character change where the bones play the melody and it's a little bit more complex harmony. And then it kind of cools down into a, a long solo section, which starts on bass and then transitions to piano um, and then trumpet and sax. So there's four soloists. And, and over that stretch, there's kind of a development of all the material. And then the final and fourth section is the coda or the recapitulation where the uh, the original theme comes back on lead trumpet for a triumphant ending, and so there you have kind of four large sections. Right, exactly, and so yeah, you you would say that I, we would both say the first section is one big crescendo, the second section, which is shorter, which is is like a a winding down interlude of sorts. And then you have this from the solo section to the very end, uh, from from essentially measure fifty four, where the bass solo begins, all the way to the very bitter end. It's uh, it's one massive crescendo with a couple mini crescendos uh, and decrescendos in there, um, like the end of the trumpet solo for one. Um, but in particular, once we get to the tenor sax solo, then it really is just one big crescendo to the end. He does this through. Uh, various harmonies and the bringing back of melodies and the very distinct choice of using instrument that heighten the intensity. So bass, although it can be very intense, is usually a less intense instrument, particularly for soloing. Then that evolves into the piano, which evolves into the trumpet, which evolves into the tenor, um, which is uh, a very logical one might say, but it's also a, a great choice in having a section grow, um, changing the soloist from section to section to grow more intense as it goes along. Yeah, and um, just having gotten to know Rich and, and heard his thoughts on arranging over the years, one thing that really strikes me studying this piece is that every choice is so intentional, and that's one of the hardest things to do as an arranger or a composer is to come up with a piece that feels like every choice you can logically defend it. I know that he would think about it that way, where every orchestration choice makes logical sense. Every 
instrumentation, like Drew was mentioning, what order are the solos, what registers are the instruments playing in, all those choices are extremely uh, judicious within this piece. I think it's hard to put a finger on it because it's just kind of a something that comes with, with a lot of experience, but, um, but there's just so much uh, tastefulness and subtlety within the use of these different choices. To continue that very thought, it's, it's, it's even the logic of the orchestration is there, the logic of the form is there, and how the energy grows. But also um, something that we want to mention is that there's so much good economy of motif in this piece. Uh, everything almost everything in the entire piece can be distilled down into the quarter note rhythm or the dotted eighth, sixteenth rhythm. There's really not much that breaks the mold. Everything is connected uh, in some way to that. The fact that everything comes from that piece makes everything organically sound like it was meant to stay together. Uh, There's no random improvisatory feeling uh, things that just don't seem to belong. Uh, everything is a derivative of our two main motifs in some way. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, all the melodies are built off of this this dotted eighth to sixteenth, you know, bum, ba-dum, 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 stuff like that. It's, it's all pretty much based off of that. And uh, like we said, that quarter note just keeps pulsing through. Um, so yeah, it's just it, it, I think we can say that this has a very cohesive quality throughout. So our next category is the use of melodies and themes. Like we've said, the main melody is first appears in the, the bass and the piano, and as mentioned previously, it, it seems to have a wandering effect. It's not locked into any particular time signature or, or phrasing length, really. You might be able to guess that this piece is in 4-4, four, four, but you wouldn't really know from just listening to the melody. It is almost, it's timeless in that it is continuing uh, in a unknown way, the phrasing is is built off different lengths of of bars and phrase and and so on and so forth. That's our main melody, which continues to evolve uh, through our through the different key centers that Rich explores in the first section of the piece. And then, really, all that all that's happening is melody and accompaniment for almost the entire first section until we hear the soprano sax. Originally, he had this written for oboe. Is that is that right? Am I making that up? No, I don't think you are. I think he he wanted to have oboe play and continue the classical feel of this piece. But I don't think any in the anyone in the band could play oboe. <laughs> it's on soprano because that's the closest instrument within the reed section that uh, can kind of 
get an oboe-like effect. It's kind of got that the middle register of the soprano, which has a nice kind of darker, warm sound compared to the upper register of the soprano. A little bit reedy as well, too, which is nice. It's a beautiful timbre to have here. And the melody here is kind of what I would think of as almost the um, the unofficial second melodic phrase or theme, which... It just kind of goes between these three notes, up and down, up and down, and, it, and that comes back through in, in, in later sections in the background. Right. It's, it's like an obligato... Uh, line that because it's the only as a solo instrument it brings a spotlight to it in a way that if multiple people were playing it it wouldn't have the same uh, spotlight on it but because particularly because it's the highest instrument playing at that particular moment and it's a very piercing timbre in a way it gets its own moment and it certainly has a hopeful quality being uh, one two three of a diatonic scale and it really, it's, it's the first counterpoint that we have in the section, uh, melodic counterpoint, you would say. Um, everything before this moment is accompaniment and melody, so we're div- Rich is very gradually introducing melodic counterpoint. Throughout the rest of the piece, those couple of melodic ideas uh, are just basically brought back in different key centers, in different... Um, different pitches, different instruments, different doublings of instruments in different scenarios with different soloists on top of them. So it's like we mentioned, you know, this piece can be distilled into a couple different rhythmic ideas throughout. The three note melodic motif comes back in the trombones. It comes back in the soprano again, which is the next time we hear it. But then it comes back in the trombones in counterpoint with the trumpets. uh, And that continues um, to all the way from all throughout the most of the tenor saxophone solo. Let's get into harmony since the, the theme I think is covered pretty well. Um, Harmonically, this is very much taking less of a traditional jazz approach, which would be, you know, writing out D7, G7, B flat 7, A minor 7. It's not so much that uh, everything's based on these traditional jazz chords, but it's more taking a three note or a four note uh, voicing in the piano and then picking bass notes in the mode that fits that. It's less about picking a chord and then coming up with stuff that fits the chord, and it's more about picking a mode and then deriving ideas and combinations of notes that fit within the mode. The bass note almost becomes less relevant, um, and what's more important is the sound of the harmony um, and what scale is being uh, depicted by the melody. A very clever way that he does this is by putting the melody in the bass, as it is for almost the entire first section. And then when the melody returns in the coda, the recapitulation, first in the bones and then in the lead trumpet, the bass note is of less importance than what's happening above it. It's, uh, you know, our good friend uh, and guitarist Noel Johnson has a great way of describing this. Uh, he, He relates it to food. 
he says that、uh, in English cooking, you you get what you see. It,、uh, the, the, it's all there. The that's like classical harmony, one three five. And in French cooking, the the what's on the what's on the plate is just as important as the sauce. And the sauce it kind of represents the the colorful notes. So you might have potatoes and steak, but then the sauce that you put on it. Really adds to the flavor, and so that's like your traditional jazz harmony with thirteens, elevens. But then you have Indian cooking, which is it doesn't matter what the material you're eating is; it's all about the sauce. The sauce is the most important thing you have. So that is like having a modal harmony, and it doesn't really matter what's going on inside, but the, the mode is the most important thing, and so the. The base is is not as important, which I think is a great way of describing harmony and different approaches to it. So Rich is certainly taking this、uh, modal approach to it, which makes it feel less "quote unquote" jazzy. Well, it's almost lunchtime, so now I I don't know what to choose. <laughs> They all sound good to me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And no, it's all about context. It's not one is better than the other. It's it's、uh, what do you want the piece to feel like? Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, the bass,、uh, especially at the beginning of this piece, the bass really does serve more of a melodic role, which I think also adds to the programmatic aspect、yes. of feeling kind of like we're not there yet because because the bass is such a fundamental part of feeling rooted in something, right?、Uh, be, because the bass is wandering, it's kind of like oh, we don't have anything to kind of anchor us, and I think it just gives us that sense that we're. We're traveling. We're we're having to persevere. Right. I, I think it it works very nicely programmatically. It, one might say perseverance.、Uh, this is cert. This is not perseverance、uh, of a militaristic sense. Like we will persevere. Da da da. You know, like、uh, or any of that. This is this is a re- this is difficult perseverance in spite of difficulty. That's the the mode, and so that's that's where the harmony I feel comes in, in that it's not a stable thing. It is a it's a wandering thing, and yet with the quarter note insistence,、uh, that's what keeps it driving forward. It's the juxtaposition of these two seemingly disparate ideas that coalesce beautifully. Just to give a, a little example of、uh, some specifics.、Um, Let's just、uh, talk about the first section where these different modes are introduced. Right. The、um, the first thing that you hear in this whole piece is the right hand of the piano playing an A flat、uh, triad, but sus four, so A flat, D flat, and E flat. No third, just the one, four, and five of the key. And、um, Melody comes in. All the notes are based off of the A flat major or A flat Ionian parent scale, and then because it's bass, certain notes will make it sound like it's maybe in a implying a different、uh, mode of the major scale,、right. like a Dorian or a、um, Phrygian or something like that. But、uh, like we said, it doesn't really matter. You, you don't need a label for it. It's all just within that mode. One thing that we'll say right now is that. What also makes this piece feel less jazzy is that the harmonic rhythm is very slow in this piece. A lot of jazz standards have chords that change every bar, maybe every two bars, sometimes three or four chords a bar. And once we got into modal jazz with kind of blue and and subsequent records, the harmonic rhythm became less active. 
but this this follows in that footsteps but it's not a strophic form it, it's constantly changing and evolving it, it never really goes back save for a few moments so and when it does it's developed completely differently so the first chord we have a flat major for the entire fifth, first 15 bars the next chord that we get is a uh, b mixolydian for the next uh four five or, or so bars, five bars here. And we go back to A flat after that, but it's A flat Lydian. So it's a new development in our, uh, instead of the A sus4, we have an A sus2 voicing. So it's uh, a, a different color and it allows for that uh, sharp 11 in the Lydian mode to really poke through and, and have its own moment to shine. We don't have uh, the time to get into every chord of this piece because it's just so expansive. But that's a good starting point to at least understand the foundation and concept. Uh, just to kind of give a little bit of an um, example of how the melody can work against this. At the very beginning, we have that. Now, let's go back to that. Uh, you know, that 1, 4, 5, or A flat, sus, 4. And then you have the melody. You know, all those different notes of that mode, when they rub against the uh, upper structure three-note chord in different ways. And that's part of kind of opening up the different colors and sounds within the mode. That's something that's really, really enjoyable as a composer to play around with and, and to try to figure out what uh, intervals kind of have different emotional effects. I'll say one last thing about the harmony, and that is... Uh... It really doesn't move quickly at all, save for one or two moments in the piece. And the first time the the harmony moves quickly is at the end of the trumpet solo, when uh, Rich uses what I like to affectionately call rich harmony, <laughs> where uh, one of his favorite techniques is uh, different bass notes underneath triads of a, of a different pairing. So you'll hear it here, uh, D flat over G in the G over E flat. E flat over B. A lot of them are uh, tritones or um, uh, major seven sharp fives, um, but it's a foreshadowing to the coda when the harmony moves quick, more quickly, and it's more agitated, and and it's a final climactic moment. So it's a beautiful moment to to break away. It it, it gives the piece a, a mini climax there at the end of the trumpet solo, foreshadowing what's to come. So that when it dies back down, there's a sense of expectation. Are we going to get this to happen again? And uh, thankfully, he delivers, and it's beautiful. Another name for those types of chords would be um, either slash chords, or I've heard it described as um, a triad with a foreign bass note, just kind of something unrelated. Wouldn't quite call them polychords yet, as you'd need two chords. You'd need a triad and another triad for that. Exactly. You could also... uh, kind of tie him to like Herbie Hancock. He used he used those a lot as well. Yep, definitely a staple of of modern jazz writing, more adventurous harmony and and 
more abstract than it's even even though there's less notes in the, those chords they feel more abstract than say a 13 flat 9 sharp 11 you know that it has a context and a, a direction where these are less so it kind of masks the tone the tonality of it and um what's cool about the the use of it in this piece is that you get this real saturation of this plotting quarter note modal idea and then every once in a while it kind of just serves well just the two times you see it in the piece it just serves to kind of break up that expectation a little bit and then you get back into the modal thing and it feels like fresh refreshed again, again yes. you know <laughs> well it's said. like it's like getting a glass of water on your journey <laughs> lovely I suppose we should talk a little bit about orchestration to wrap things up. What do you say, Aaron? Let's do it. Wonderful. We've touched on it already, but just like the rest of the pieces, the word that we use to describe the orchestration to encapsulate our feeling of it, it rather is uh, is one of growth. It's It's a growing orchestration. It's evolving, and it's always... I think the word you used, Aaron, was additive, right? That's right, yep. Yeah, so um, we start very simply with just three notes in the piano and the left hand of the piano and the bass together in the melody. A few bars later, the trombones and the altos are playing the exact same notes as the piano is, and the guitar joins them, and they're echoing each other. So instead of having the trombones constantly play or the saxophones constantly play, we feel like there's a wave of horns happening. And at first they don't dovetail each other, and then after six or so measures, they do. And uh, so the piece is constantly developing orchestrationally. One thing that you see throughout this score is you just see a lot of layers of different ideas. Not all the ideas also are supposed to be kind of the main idea. I mean, you have foregrounds and backgrounds, um, which is, you know, part of the complexity of achieving a good orchestration is, is being able to differentiate between different layers and what's going to be more at the forefront and what's going to be at the back. You don't want everything to be one dimensional. You have certain lines where there's maybe a counter line between two groupings of instruments and they kind of move when the other one rests. And that's a very common technique for counterpoint. You have groupings of two or three instruments Mm -hmm. throughout you know, you have maybe altos one and two playing one idea in unison, and then you have trombones four and five, since it's written for ten brass. Maybe trombones four and five playing something, or trombones one, two, and three all playing something in unison. And it's broken up into smaller groupings, which is something that I think is very important orchestrationally. And, and Drew and I were just kind of commenting on how um, this is... Well, for me, especially, it's something that I I haven't started really learning how to do until recently is just not use all of the trumpets, all of the trombones, all of the saxes whenever they come in, but to actually have a purpose. And and maybe you only use three, maybe you only use two, maybe you only use four of the saxes instead of all five. Um, And that allows you to to get a uh, different complexity of orchestration. A more nuanced sound, for sure. 
And the juxtaposition of multiple instruments playing together versus a solo is a very beautiful choice. So when the soprano saxophone comes in, it's a solo, and everything else is not. When the bass has it, when all the solo melodic instruments happen, the orchestration behind each of them is very carefully chosen. There's no trumpets playing behind the trumpet solo. Um, it's it's a long time before the saxophones come in during the saxof- tenor saxophone solo. And except for the first measure, there's no trumpets playing during the final orchestral trumpet solo. So it's, it's, there's decisions like these. And finally, the, the last 2D section, when everyone's playing together, the saxophones don't really play the same, ever play the same unison notes as the brass does. So there's no true orchestral 2D in this whole song. There's all, the, the saxophones are always in some sort of counterpoint to them. But the chords, the orchestration never feels empty you know there's always a fullness to the sound and that's achieved through his masterful voicings but also um using counterpoint which is your classic big band writing glenn miller style everyone's a lot of the time playing the same thing count basie too there's a beauty to that but there's also a beauty to this counterpoint voices moving against each other which creates a different kind of emotion and forward momentum so one thing that, that I'm noticing right now is that we're talking mainly about the horns and how they're orchestrated. And it just occurred to me that the rhythm section is written so transparently in this piece. Mm. And it's so atmospheric and the drums don't serve your traditional purpose of maybe creating a groove that's really driving the piece. But everything is driven by the actual harmonic, melodic, and formal aspects of it the the rhythm section is more of a color than it is serving as like the engine and the motor that keeps it going because every everyone is kind of has an equal part in keeping that pulse going very much Um, so but uh yeah it's just it's really cool to see a piece where the rhythm section kind of what each instrument normally does it's almost like their role is kind of turned around a little bit yeah, usually we rely on the drums and the bass to provide that quarter note, um, the swinging quarter note, and we don't have that here. You know, we ha- we have our quarter note, but it's in the piano. <laughs> it's always there in the piano, and so that's the main thing that drives this piece forward, and it's it's certainly not alone in that, because you all, almost always have the saxophones or the bones doing the quarter note pattern with it, at least a lot of the time. It's a different It's a different way of creating energy. Uh, rather than your classic walking bass line or, or groove. It's so natural. It almost feels improvised or something. Right. Like it just, it almost feels like it's it's just there. It's natural. You don't even really notice that it's necessarily there. Everything in this piece is so transparent. And that's, that's something that I think is so hard to achieve. That's one of the things in this piece. And it, it's hard to recognize because... If you hear it, it just sounds good. Like, it's not something that you can... It's like you hear, like, a really fast line or something, and you're like, wow, that's cool and impressive. Or, like, a high note or, like, a cool drum fill or a cool solo. But to me, what's even more impressive than those things is just this sense that everything is so clear. Everything is so transparent, and you can just understand the piece on one listen without having to think too hard. I mean, it just, it presents the ideas with such clarity. It's a very different type of energy than we're used to in most jazz music. And I think that's what draws composers to this piece and audiences alike is, 
It's uh, it's universality, and yet because the ideas are presented so clearly, like you've said, it's there's uh, there's there's a lot of complexity in there, but the way that they're presented is so clear that they appear simple. So I think that's what we love about this piece, and hopefully that's what our insights have provided for all of you listening. So I think that that about wraps it up, wouldn't you say? I would say so. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I have a newfound appreciation for this piece. As much as I loved it before, I love it even more now. Same here. And, and we're grateful to Rich for uh, lending us his score and uh, allowing us to play it here on the on the episode. Like I mentioned earlier, you can purchase it at his website. Uh, I believe it's richderosa.com or through a Google search with Rich DeRosa Composer, you'll find it. And uh, you can find more recordings of the One O'Clock Lab Band at, uh, UN, at the UNT website. And Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Drew, pleasure as always. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Uh, email us with any questions or topics or ideas of your own, or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for tuning in. We appreciate your listenership, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at the Arrangers Pod. Happy writing, and hope to see you next time.